It's the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thanks for spending some time with us. We think we have a great panel and discussion in store for you. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETF's Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi again, Alan. Hey, good morning, everyone. And with us this week are Robin Chase and Carlos Pardo from the New Urban Mobility Alliance. Robin is the founder, also as well known as the founder of Zipcar and more. Carlos is senior manager for pilots and is a psychologist who is focused on urban development and mobility. Also with us, Dr. Daniel Sperling, distinguished professor of civil engineering and environmental science and policy and founding director of the Institute of Transportation Studies at the University of California, Davis. Thanks, Robin, Carlos, and Dan for being here. So great to have you. Thanks for having us. Our focus is on ride sharing and the impact of COVID-19. We could probably talk all day about this. Robin, perhaps, first of all, you can give us some background, the audience a little background about the new Urban Mobility Alliance. Um, I founded this, uh, I had the idea a couple of years ago and, and then I got some funding. My, my thought was that as I traveled around the world and talked to companies, private sector providers, they were saying, you know, we don't understand, cities don't even know what they want to do and then they yell at us when we do the wrong thing. And then I would talk to cities and they would say, oh my God, these, you know, these startups, they're just ruining things for us. So uh, two and a half years ago, I started something called, I convened and we created the Shared Mobility Principles. And those principles were laying, it was a bunch of NGOs that put those together. And the idea was to have a standard set of principles on which we all could find agreements, every stakeholder. Um, There's 10 of them, and I'll just say some of the first ones so you can see how straightforward they are. The first one is, oh my God, Carlos. Um, Number two, number two is we move people, not cars. Uh, the first is we build buildings and transportation together, but the idea is there, there are things that unite everyone who works on the realm of transportation. Among them, with respect to this idea of ride sharing, is that cities, is that everyone seeks in urban areas should make efficient use of all of its assets, the curb, the roads, and the vehicles that ride on them, and that's where this ride sharing would come in. And I just want to one more point as we think about this is let's define ride sharing. And for me, ride sharing means any two people, two or more people who are going in the same destination who are sharing the trip. And I'm being very cautious here because I would not define Uber and Lyft and the TNCs as ride sharing since they are one person is going in one direction. That it's not, two people are not sharing the trip unless it was an Uber pool or a Lyft line. So I think we wanna really talk about more than one person sharing a vehicle going in the same direction. And that would go expansively all the way up to subways and buses because there are would, many people. Would you include Robin, uh, people who are in, in the same family? Uh, my spouse and I going out for dinner, is that right? Oh, you know, that is the gray area. <laughs> And when we think about giving incentives or counting 
you know, counting for commutes, um, that is often considered ride sharing. And in fact, it is sharing a ride in that those people could choose to go in separate vehicles. So I guess I want to give them a pass. Um, yeah, but they could, but but it's not practical. I mean, you know, should you really be able to use the carpool lane in California because you you and your spouse are going to dinner? I mean, you're not going to take two cars. I mean, you're or you're taking your kid to school. I mean, you're 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 being a computer. I, uh, Come on, Robin, don't give them, don't, don't, don't let them have it. Don't let them have it. Oh. Dan. Oh. <laughs> okay. Here, I'm going I'm to weigh in on, 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 Robin's, on Robin's side here because, you know, I haven't worked in the policy world for a while now. I've come to appreciate that when you try to fine tune these policies and regulations and so on, you tie yourself up in knots. And so you say, okay. You know, there's there's some parts that come along with the package that you just have to accept. Uh, stay focused on the real mission and don't get too distracted. I want to throw Carlos in though, there. Carlos has two children who are not yet of driving age, but if he had a 17 year old and a 12 year old and his wife, and they all went together to different locations, they did some trip chaining wouldn't that be considered ride sharing because they could go separately, but they decide to go together, Carlos. But, but also, isn't it in the U.S. that you are one person when legally when you are married? I mean, once I rented a car and then they said, well, <laughs> your wife and you are the same person. So then it would not be sharing. So it, uh, it makes it very complicated. That's very, I, I, that's very spiritual, Carl. Yeah. And I think if we talk to our spouses, uh, I'm not sure we'd get agreement on that concept. <laughs> Car Carlos, I think we'd, we'd like to hear about some of the work that you've been doing at the Alliance. And, and it has to do with COVID and, and ride sharing. Tell, tell us about it. So, yeah, we, we so Robin actually made me quit my own job in, in an NGO that I created and I was there for 10 years. So then you can imagine how persuasive she was. And, and I've been working in Numo doing pilots in different places in, in the US and more recently in Latin America. But then because of COVID, of course, things got, uh, well, things are now different they change every day and then we we started to sort of try and understand whether and how we can integrate uh, the discussions that we've been having in NUMO and, and sort of the, the different applications of tech-enabled disruptions. And it's been really interesting because since March we have done a hackathon in Bogota where I'm now based to try and understand how we can uh, solve transport during COVID, how we can get uh, everybody to where they need to go, especially now there's people who really have to travel. And then based on that, we said, okay, there's different options of what we can do. Uh, one thing is that we can create a platform where doctors can say where they're going and nurses and administrative staff of hospitals. And then they can say, I'm here and then I have to go here. And that platform is a digital platform where people could say, okay, then the government takes this information and creates new routes which are specific to these people. 
So that actually did happen with, but only routes? with transit. So that yeah, was new created, routes and mass transit? Right. So they created new routes in mass transit and in public transport. We tried to get uh, Uber, Beat, Diddy, and some other ones uh, to take part in this. But in our country, all of that is illegal. And even during COVID, we couldn't get the Ministry of Transport to agree that they could be of service despite being seen as illegal. They were just still illegal. We couldn't really get them there. So then that was sort of one portion of the work. Another one was that we got, well, one of the results of the hackathon was give bicycles to people. It was just, they said, well, this is the best thing that you can do. So I said, okay. And we got 400 bicycles from an e-bike uh, shared bike provider in the city who had them all in a warehouse because they couldn't operate during COVID. And then we gave them to nurses and doctors and administrative staff in, in different hospitals where government told us, this is where you should go. So that was done during a month. And then we did a survey with them. We did a survey with people in Bogota. So then we got a thousand respondents of people telling us actually that they would Many people who were riding transit predicted that they would change to bicycles or some form of uh, active transport, including scooters and including uh, e-bikes. Uh, but many people said that they would get off transit. Some people said that they would start to use app-based services was sort of the, the option. So then we started to sort of understand what was happening there. Uh, um, and what we're doing now is that we're working with a group of epidemiologists to understand whether transit is really safe or not during COVID, or how can we make transit safer uh, before it goes broke. We all know that if we lose transit, we lose many livelihoods, basically, because people, many people have to use transit. So then we found six factors, which is where I think it's, it becomes interesting also to ride sharing. After a lot of discussions, really a lot of discussions because epidemiologists are very strict and stringent on, on what they approve is the truth. So we agreed that the cleanliness of vehicles and stations is fundamental. We agreed that the behavior of the users in terms of wearing the adequate face mask and eyewear for the entire journey was probably the most important of all. Did you say and eyewear? I, yeah. <laughs> I never so heard about this that, before. Tell me. Yeah. So, so the thing is that the face mask does uh, reduce the risk of you coughing or doing anything. But since the advent of the finding that aerosols are a crucial thing also, and that we may get COVID because of aerosols, then you have to wear glasses. You have to have something which protects your eyes. So, so yeah, that is a new one. Uh, but then you also have to be silent uh, because four minutes of talking is the same as 30 seconds of sneezing. So then that is another thing. Uh, the duration of the trip is really important. And this is a bad thing for the US where trips are pretty long. Uh, if you're going on a trip or if you're being close to other people for more than 15 minutes, then it starts to become problematic. Uh, and I know that trips in the US are pretty long. Uh, 
then we have the dis yeah i think a better solution is better ventilation in in the right so vehicle. thank you i mean we get on airplanes yeah and they're yeah. you know they're 10 hour trips so so i was down to the first four then you have distancing which we are trying to demonstrate we have actually demonstrated that you can be even as close as one feet apart from people if all the rest is is you're complying with all the rest and the last factor which is the most complicated one to understand is a ventilation because it is not just that there's a ventilation system but also that the ventilation system is one where the air has 100 percent renovation in less than one minute and that seems to be pretty hard like not every air conditioning system is like that preferably you would want to have a vehicle where the windows are open so when you take all those six if you're doing all those things six things right then people can be pretty close to each other and then ride sharing for example would be fine you just open every window uh, you have shorter trips you are not talking like crazy and then you just wear your face mic and something like goggles or whatever but that's sort of where we are and we're trying to get something published but i need all of these epidemiologists to say yes this is correct and we're fine with saying this and that's sort of where we are but the feeling seems to be from the epidemiologists that you've spoken to and gathered data from that ride sharing and transit can be safe even during a pandemic so okay and, and then that's something really interesting I would even say, but they don't allow me to say it like publicly signed by all of them, that if you You can in, say it here because yeah, you know, we, say here. we say a lot of things. So go yeah, ahead, yeah. Carlos. <laughs> so, so my, for now, my sentence, my, my preferred sentence now is, it may be safer to be inside a vehicle than inside a shop because you have better ventilation in the vehicle if you have it properly done. So that's, that's sort of the, the key insight that I've arrived at. If you are, if you go into, I don't know, whatever place, 7-Eleven or whatever, and you spend more than 15 minutes and it doesn't have good ventilation, then you're at a greater risk than if you're in a vehicle and it's moving because your ventilation is so much better. You know, a lot of this is perception. You know, I think that from the research I've seen is that, there have been almost no cases of COVID traced back to transfer in mass transit or in vehicles. Yeah, almost none. none. Almost, yeah, none. So, you know, if you come up with kinds of rules and guidelines like that, it's going to scare people even more, and it's going to be, you know, difficult. So I'm a little skeptical of coming out with those kinds of recommendations and guidelines. I mean, it's like the CDC said in the beginning, remember, they said, don't use mass transit. And those are the epidemi epidemiologists. That's they hadn't, but so that's an interesting point that you're, you're saying two different things. One is, it's a communications and marketing story and everyone has got this idea in their mind, don't take mass transit. But on the other hand, the reality is that in certain circumstances, it's not high risk and it has proven to be not high risk and you need to communicate that in order to get people to travel again. So, so the thing is people, and people don't talk in transit, right? Like you don't see people like 
just talking to the guy next to them. They yeah, don't. That's unfortunate, you know, but yeah, you're absolutely true. I mean, New York City subway system, especially before 9-11, I mean, nobody talked about it. They, the, they don't I mean, even look the, at each other. One of the good things in 9-11 is at least maybe, you know, New York became much more friendlier and so on. At least you looked at somebody in, in, in the subway. Uh, but yeah, you, you're absolutely right, Carlos. Uh, people don't talk. They sit, well, there people, and they, they, they sit there and read and they have their phones here. Maybe the phone actually provides protection because it's being held up here. And, you know. Like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> You know, I think the, ch the problem we have is that people are very fearful. They see high risk. And, and you know, if there's not high risk, th that's the message that we have to get across. And in any case, this is going to go away. This is not going to be here forever. You know, if we, um, if this fear of other people and sharing space with other people prevails and persists, that's not only the downfall of, of transit, of transportation, but of civilization as a whole. I mean, so we need to know that we are going to get beyond this. And, and clearly, you know, this, this risk factor is something that we need to address in a, in a, I mean, in a scientific way, but also in terms of addressing people's fears. As Carl's pointed out, there's the whole issue of um, the economics, the f which I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that we, we all agree we should be putting health first, and we do put health first. But while people are afraid to get on and health isn't an issue, these public transit is going to go under. Carlos, the, the, the epidemiologists that, that you've spoken to, do they discuss at all the need or, or use of technologies like a UVC lighting or some other kind of uh, san sanitizing technology for yeah for vehicles. every time sometimes ring does up then, then they just they just discard it it's it doesn't seem to be so effective and then it's such a huge hassle to to put this into the system so so the thing is how if we take everything that we've said until now and then and then also I mean, Dan's point is, is very useful in that we don't have to tell people, follow these six things and then you'll be safe because it's like, where, where are you taking me, right? H how can we arrive at, at a place where we are being attentive to the health of people, but we're not reducing this to you can't leave your home because then you're going to be at risk, right? And, and that sort of... I mean, the, the interesting thing in, in, in this whole COVID problem is that we need to find agreements between these very different disciplines. And I'm always telling people, like, when we work in transport, we're like, oh, it's fine. I mean, we'll see what happens. It's okay. Whereas the, everybody in the, in the medical profession is like, we need to have a 0 0.0001 uh, confidence level or, or alpha right and and how how can we agree between all of us that it's going to be fine some of us may die but how can we arrive at the place where we don't end up without any transit at all because we try to save people and then many people like what is happening in Colombia is and in many places in Latin America is that 
because people do not have any economic opportunity because of COVID, then they're dying because they don't have anything to eat, basically. Yeah, so they're how, dying of hunger. I mean, that? you know, yeah. life's a risk, and and you know, we're always taking risk, and 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 there, and risk is a perception, which is. Why it's so nice to have you on on here, Carlos, because you know perceptions are key to to to, to uh, you know your perspectives, and, and it's always a trade off, a risk reward type of thing by the individual, and 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 the whole thing is 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 really what what the perception is. Look, I mean, every time you get in the car, I mean, but there's you know, a reality yeah, when you're saying that, Alan, there yeah. is perception of risk, but there's also real risk. So the, the, absolutely. The balancing of the different real risks. And it's one of the interesting things we think of ride sharing in the US. So going away from I'm going to starve if I can't go out and, and um, make some money. Um, there's the other piece that if we let public transit go under, um, and if we discourage, or if people are discouraged from riding on trains that actually have quite a low risk, um, the alternative is rich people or people who have enough money will be buying cars and then we can think about the associated health effects from poor air quality and climate and what are those percentages of deaths and disease. So I feel like there is a little bit of weighing those likelihoods. Um, that has you know, to be done. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, this is, unless we all stay in our hole and never get out, but you know, uh, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people don't have what we all seem to have here, us uh, so that we can actually uh, do this. I mean, my goodness, uh, um, a lot of people are, don't have this opportunity. They, they, they have to go out and go to work and earn and to live. And, can't just work at home like like we've been doing. I mean, we, we have it really good. There, there is a, a real stark difference between people who need to take mass transit. It's a necessity. It's the only way. And people who have it as an option. Should I do it or should I not? Should I take a car? And people who are standing in a supermarket line where they have to be, you know, stand on the on the on the circles six feet apart from one another. Logically, they, they would think to themselves, well, I can't take mass transit because I'm a whole lot closer to other people than than these circles on the floor are. So where it's an option, it's a it's a different set of circumstances from people who don't have uh, don't have options, you know, in, in terms of getting from here to there. Well, let me broaden that discussion a little bit more because the reality is that the transportation system we have does a really poor job, really a socially irresponsible job of serving a large portion of our population. It's not only the people that are low income, but physically disabled and mass, what we call mass transit only so it accounts for in the United States about 5% of commute trips on average. But if you look at all trips, it's about that means it's about 2% of all trips. And if you look at it in terms of passenger miles traveled, it's down around 1%. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot more than, you know, one or 2% of the population that need 
transportation service. Even if people, there are, if you look at how many households are without cars, it's a relatively small, but it gets fairly large when you look at the Hispanic community and the African-American community. And, but even there, they have one car in a household. Right, and right. What do the other of, people do? <laughs> right. First of what do the other people do, number one. Number two is those cars are often not very reliable. And so they break down and, you know, they miss work. They miss uh, health appointments. They, so, they have broken taillights and they get pulled over and then who knows what. And then there, there's a warrant out for their arrest because they didn't pay the paid for the broken taillight that they got pulled over last week for. I mean, it's, it's terrible. It's just horrible. Go ahead. So, okay. So thank you, Alan. So (laughs) the point is we're doing a, you know, the car centric transportation system we've developed in the United States works for some many people, but does not work for many others and mass transit. You know, we, it's on a pedestal. We treat it and, and rightly so but it still serves a very small percentage of the, we'll call them the mobility disadvantaged population. So if we're really serious about creating, let's not even say better transportation, let's even say, you know, <laughs> maintaining even what we have, but certainly improving it in terms from an equity perspective, from an economic perspective, because we spend a vast amount of money on our vehicles and fuels and roads. And from an environmental perspective in terms of climate change and pollution and health, for all of those reasons, not only can we do better, but we should and must do better. And that's where the ride sharing comes into this. And, you know, we can all do forecast, well, we can all do, you know, I just spent a you know, a couple hours on the phone yesterday with some experts on transit, and they told me all the reasons why you can't change it, why you can't get it to work more partner with ride-sharing companies and micro-mobility companies, and there's a long list, and, and it's, you know, and they're correct, but here we are in a crisis, and it is a real crisis, it, you know, from a transit perspective, these, com- these transit operators, they've lost 70 to 90% of their riders. So they're heavily subsidized already. And so the, the amount of fair revenue they're losing is, is important, but it's not massive. But the other side of it is they're also losing revenue uh, in terms of where they get their money from sales tax, from gasoline taxes and so on. So the, the transit operators are, and they were already losing ridership for many years. They need, transit needs a revolution. Transit needs transformation. And the way I look at it, and so I didn't introduce my, um, some of my activities, but at the Institute of Transportation Studies, we have a big program on what we call the three revolutions. And that's linking together electric vehicles, sharing and automation. And we do that because going forward, there has to be a broadening of the concept of public transportation, the reality of public transportation. And the, the only strategy I see, at least for the United States, is partnering with ride sharing and micromobility companies, public-private, 
And there's all kinds of reasons why that can't happen and all kinds of barriers. But I'm here to say, if we don't do that, we really are creating, we are letting down a huge percentage of the population. We're creating um, really barriers, you know, people just in simple things, people getting to work, getting to health services. But in terms of our transportation system, it just is, is a disaster. But Dan, a, a question I have in, uh, on that is that I might suggest that one of the reasons why I don't ride share when I get in my car and go someplace is that I have no idea that there's anybody who would want to go from where I am to where I want to go or in the direction that I want to go that I can drop them off at the time when I want to go. I have no idea. I don't know what my neighbors are doing. Is it, is it possible to create an information infrastructure that maintains, that maintains all kinds of privacy appropriate, but just makes it so that that needle in that haystack can find itself? I mean, in some sense, the same way, you know, the original Amazon concept was, holy mackerel, I'm looking for this book, I can't find it, da, da, da. I'm gonna, you know, it's a needle hidden in this haystack, you create this information system, I find it, I get it, I get my book. I guess, maybe I'm not, you know, really responding to the, the right origin of, of Amazon. But I think, you know, my looking, as you know, you know, I created what I think is the typical, the 1.2 billion trips that take place on a typical day in the United States and look at them and try to match them up in Peoria, in, 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 in Houston and whatever and, and see what the opportunities are for those things are. And when, when my students look at that, we see there are opportunities. There are people who go from about the same place to about the same place at about the same time who could be going together. There's just no information to bring them together, let alone my ability to open my car windows, let them in there and jump in the car with me. Alan, yeah, Alan. yeah Robin, yeah, please come in. So, yeah. so, you're, so one of the things I didn't talk about on my resume is I spent yeah. two years building a ride-sharing company that yeah. ultimately failed. And this would be long distance ride-sharing, but I still give it a lot of thought. So what you're talking about is origin destination timing matches. Yeah. I want to talk to this on two points. Yeah. One is we have a lot of, there's a lot of flexibility in our timing. Sure. And I would say a little bit, and there's a little bit of flexibility in our origin and destination, like sure. the two or three blocks. Sure. But my incentive to make any of those adjustments is just about zero because we have so underpriced car travel. I was once talking to an audience of a thousand people in Barcelona when I was doing this. And I said, how many of you would wait two minutes in order to pick someone up, to give someone a ride share ride and you can get paid a Euro for this. Would you be willing to wait two minutes to give someone a lift within the city doing the same thing? Mm -hmm. Not one hand yeah. in a thousand people yeah. raise their hands. So first off our pricing signals for me not taking my own car or caring about the other person who doesn't have a car is just about zero now. Yeah. And then the, the other side of it is when you say, is there a way to get that amount of data? It, the thing that completely knocked my thoughts off was when I think it was Lyft 
was the company that did it first. So I always thought the regular TNC is basically taxis. It's just taxis. Yeah, it yeah. is taxis, and I yeah. called it the people's taxi, yeah, even yeah. though they called it ride-sharing. Yeah, but sure. when they it's actually started to yeah. do Lyft Line and, and Uber Pro, I thought, oh, my God, they actually are able to do this because they have created this huge amount of origin destination timing demands, right. this incredible critical mass, so a small fraction of those are able to pull through. Yeah. I'd say they could do it because they backed into it by, I'm going to drive you by yourself, and there were high costs associated. But those costs associated were still not high enough to make it a huge demand. And it only worked in the incredibly dense urban areas that we're talking about. So having said all that, I want to just go what Dan said, around <laughs> what Dan yeah, said. Okay. Um, I've been looking at numbers and it's fully 50% of the population at any given moment either doesn't have a car or doesn't have a driver's license. And so when we're car dependent, 50% of the people at any given moment can't go someplace. Sure. When we're throwing around all these numbers, and this is a number you guys all know, 50% of the trips are less than three miles. So when we're trying to build out our transportation system that works, that I think we absolutely profoundly need, given that 50% of people are completely out of luck, I think we need to think of it as a multimodal one. So it's not you have to own a car or you have to do ride sharing to get in a car or ride sharing to get in something. It also has to be this the ability to walk someplace safely or to take a micromobility bike or e-bike someplace safely. So at least 50% of the trips in my life, a whole bunch of us could be taking even though we are 14 years old or 82. But we need to think just as we, this, this session is around ride sharing and that is definitely a piece of the multimodal continuum that we must have if we're gonna solve this problem for urban and rural, young and old, licensed and unlicensed and getting people places. Yeah, I, I, I'm fully with Robin on that. And, and, you know, a first step is appreciating that we don't have these incentives and disincentives to encourage the pooling of rides, the use of micromobility for short trips. And, you know, you know, as Robin said, people don't have a motivation to do it, as you said, Alan. And so one of the so I think there's a lot of opportunities for starting in that direction. And the multi-modality, intermodality is critical to this, getting people accustomed to it. You know, and if you look at it from a user perspective, I, you know, I gave up my car and just started using these services. And I came to appreciate that I love being chauffeured. It, on top of everything else we've talked about, I saved a lot of time. I could read, you know, I could doze off. I didn't have to worry about falling asleep at night driving. <laughs> um, it had all these benefits and we've become so, so there's partly the incentives and disincentives, but it's also, this is the psychology part of it. We've become so accustomed to just using our cars, we don't even think about other modes. We don't even think about the disadvantages of it. We don't even think about how it could be different or better. And, you know, the problem is we've just had these two modes, transit, which is, you know, really very low quality service for almost everyone, and then cars on the other hand. And so now 
and this is what I think Robin's talking about also, is fill it, creating a whole suite of services, of mobility services. Oh, isn't it that we haven't sold it right? Uh, and let, let, me, let me be a little bit blunt on, it, on this. Um, Seatbelts. I think I claimed at one point in my life, I'm never going to wear a seatbelt. But of course I would do that. You know, that's the kind of things I do. Now I don't even think about it. Man, I put that sucker on one. Seatbelts got a hell of a lot better than they were in the 60s and the 70s. Okay, no doubt about that. But, I, you know, it, it was, there was a long-term concerted effort to wear a seatbelt. I mean, it was, it started in grade school that, you know, I don't know, maybe in kindergarten teachers were saying, there, there's nobody in kindergarten that's telling kids, hey, to save the environment, to save the planet, to do pollution, to save energy, to make it affordable, to provide opportunities for everybody, da, 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 all the good things that we seek coming out of ride sharing. There's nobody in kindergarten telling that to the kindergarten kids or in first grade or second grade or grade schools or whatever. There's none of that. In fact, who oh, get in your own car and be afraid and whatever. It's even anti that. And so, of course, nobody raises their hand. They want to, they, they want to. There is no fundamental tree hugging aspect associated with ride sharing. Am I wrong or go ahead, Rob, and jump in here. I, I keep I, waiting for Carlos to say something. Yeah. But I have something no, to say. No, but, but I mean, I, the history of why people have changed their minds and now do things automatically is pretty interesting. And there's, there's entire books about how, how the tobacco industry didn't want people to stop smoking. And then they said, well, no, it's fine. You won't die from this. And then, I mean, I think you can communicate things persuasively if you have something to communicate properly. Like you cannot, you can't promote transit in Detroit where the frequencies are at 45 minutes. Like you, you can't promote anything. You can only promote, you can read an entire book while waiting or something like that would be the only way of doing that. So, so I think- <laughs> you're, you're harsh, Carlos, you're harsh. No, but, but that, go go ahead, sorry, keep but, going, keep going. But, but the thing is I, I was once uh, in the, I mean, I, I'm coming from working in developing countries where in my city, if a bus is five minutes late, they will burn the station. And it has happened almost exactly <laughs> that way. So when I hear something like our goal to, is to have 15 minute frequencies in the next five years, I'm like, you're crazy. Like how, how can this be a goal? I don't, so it's, it's really been a learning process. But so, so I think that we do have to communicate things, but we do have to create well, better information so that it's not a needle in a haystack, but rather a stack of needles of waiting for trips, but also that we can price correctly. And then one thing to, to take, Robin was saying 50% of trips are less than three miles, 52% of trips in the US are less than six miles. And more importantly, 73% of those trips are, are done by car. And anything below three miles can be done in any mode. And I don't even think that we should be thinking about those three mile trips or, or below to be done in anything other than a non-motorized trip. And then that, that could help us in understand 
where do I put every piece of the multimodality? Should I have ride sharing for much longer trips or, or so where is the best place for, is it transit for very long trips and then you have ride sharing for more or less longer ones and then you have what is now called micromobility for shorter trips? I mean, I, I, I haven't been able to find sort of the best way of identifying the length of a trip with the service that has to be associated. I, two different points. One, Alan, when you're talking about the marketing analysis of choosing a shared mode, shared vehicle versus driving yourself, I think that anyone under the age of 35 would rather not be driving because they'd rather look at their phone and do stuff online. So I think I that they have, they have now gotten themselves into that position. All things e even equal. some of us are even some of right. us are old folks. I'm saying it's not it's we they no longer longer they don't need any persuasion. But yeah. other things yeah. are not equal, right? Other Agreed. things are not equal. Agreed. And then to Carlos's point, a long time ago, um, I heard this really great study by um, a transportation economist, a Chinese transportation economist, and he was looking analyzing a very densely used subway, and their goal was to get people out of trains for trips that were less than five kilometers. And so that really was, it was a stated goal. We want to do all this bike sharing so that no one would get onto the subway because we want to free that up for those longer trips. Um, and again, as we're having these discussions, are we talking about urban areas or, or less, less densely populated ones? But I... You know, I, 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 if you take this a little further, you know, Robin, Carlos, Ellen, is you know, if we try to optimize in that way, that's just not a good, I don't think that's a good way of thinking about it. Because you've got a lot of people, they can't even walk, a, you know, a, a hundred meters. Um, you know, you've got a lot of people with a lot of different circumstances. So, you know, trying to come up with ironclad rules about how you design these systems and services, I don't think is a very fruitful way to approach. I think a more fruitful way is how we started this conversation is creating uh, more of a suite of services that are available to people and understanding that, you know, different people are making different choices. And so it's more about choice and availability. And sure, we want to use, be smart about it and do it in a way that makes sense. We got to fit it, you know, suburban areas are different really hot climates are different than cold climates. So there's a lot of differences. So the, you know, that's why I think, you know, these ride sharing companies, you know, the, the Lyft and Uber are so important because they were the first service that came, that, that worked through a, a mobile app that people would get into other people's vehicles. And it's on-demand service. We tried on, Alan will remember this well, you know, in the 1970s, we tried on-demand dial-a-ride services. Ride. Yep. And it failed, you know, for a number of reasons. So, but we brought it back. 
and and that really is the secret is this on demand and so we have the micro and we made it easy we made it we i mean what i always like to say about uber and lyft the app may be the best app i've ever seen i mean it is really good it shows you where it is it it takes all the hassle nobody touches Let's the see. money no but or that to me i think that's very important why people just you know you know put their faith in it uh, Robin, jump in. Go ahead. So Sorry. there are two interesting points there. One is, yes, they did. The apps are beautifully designed. And when we think about on-demand and the app, the app is really, it's not coming that second. It's not even coming in a minute. No. It's coming in five to ten minutes. But it makes you feel now, like it's watching coming the right thing now. And whatever. So I want to say we have cleverly changed what that means because people always were comparing it. well if it's my own car i just jump in but in any case we have we have crossed that chasm the the other piece i want to point out that those tncs uber and lyft and <laughs> didi and all of them they initially started using my own unused asset of my car so my own i already have a driver's license and i already had a car and because I happen to live in this neighborhood and I have some free time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this thing out. That economics works really well because it's assuming that I don't have to pay, this asset doesn't have to be used 24 seven and get a return on asset. It assumes that I've got healthcare benefits, all social safety net issues, you know, vacation, sick time and whatever. It, it, it worked well when it was leveraging, when it was a side job and leveraging this excess capacity. As a full-time- yeah, And I'm people work it. for free. You need, and pe people work for free. And the, asset, go ahead, and the go. asset has to be completely paid for. Yeah, yeah, no, What's absolutely. What's challenging for me is we have, we, I, I, wanna, I wanna say I'm open-minded or I'm exploring this. Is this a reality? Some friends tell me it is, and I don't know. Is it true that transportation is inherently incredibly expensive and there isn't a free ride. So when we own our own cars, we know people are spending $9,000 a year, $25 a day, day in, day out, whether they use a car or not use a car, and they suck it up. And the government is paying for the infrastructure, which we all suck up and no one's paying for the CO2 emissions. Or when we think about the TNCs, it sounded good, it could be good, but wasn't it venture capitalists that were financing it and the workers weren't wherever? So is it true that transportation as a whole is incredibly expensive because it needs to be networked to be on demand enough? Or can we also say maybe if everyone went, went to very light micromobility vehicles and only use these other things exceptionally and at their true costs, then we could be paying for it. So I just, the economics of transportation is kind of intriguing to me. Well, I, I claim it doesn't scale until you replace that entity with a computer that Moore's Law has gotten to be free, okay? And in a sense, you've taken that individual and you, you know, you put a computer in there and now they do it and they can do it 24-7. They don't care whether it's two o'clock in the morning. That's they don't care the if you're black, white, or indifferent, you know. But building that particular platform and maintaining it and keeping it going is not free. Absolutely, that's why you need a big scale. You need to be able to spread it over a, an enormous 20 million vehicle na million vehicles nationwide or two so million. Is that a public effort or a private effort? 
probably you know, it starts private and ends up being public as most transportation I, you know yeah you ask i mean that's the yeah it starts private the public can't do it we know the public can't do it doesn't have enough money okay but, uh, no, no, I don't know. Here. I don't know. I'm sorry. That, that's that's why we could go on forever on this sucker. I mean, it, it okay. Is, yeah, go ahead. So I'm going to weigh in with Alan here. Weigh in. Weigh in. Um, Come on. <laughs> you know, really. So uh, I, I, you know, everything we've been saying here is true. You know, transportation is expensive. Intermodality, the suite of services is important. Um. But the re and and more partnerships with these new mobility companies and transit's important. I think those are all the the path forward. But really, if we're going to get significant improvement and change, it really does uh, end up with automated vehicles. There's almost no other way forward that we can do it and really transform the transportation system to be much more sustainable in, in every way. But the way it happens and the path has to be through what we'll call pooling or sharing more than one rider. And it means, you know, people giving up car, their own personal ownership and being chauffeured, a lot of attractions to that. And, but, you know, making it multiple passengers and then you start bringing that cost down and so we're not talking about only you know a regular sedan we're talking about like what via does with vehicles that are essentially small vans or what general motors uh, came out with their cruise vehicle it holds six or seven people it's an automated electric uh, shared vehicle it's a prototype now but they say they're ready to go in production you know, if and when demand and so on is available. So if you have that ridership where it's more than one rider, then you start reducing those costs. And it does bring us back to the sharing idea, but it does mean that, you know, okay, a car is 55 cents a mile now, total cost of ownership. And you add automation, robots, computers, it adds maybe another 10, really about 10 cents. A penny. Uh, in, in the long run, it's a in penny. The go ahead. No, I'm whatever. It's, yes, you're right. You're right. Go ahead. Go, go, go. Yeah. In the long run, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So no. Even say 10 cents. Yeah, 10 cents. Okay. Sure. And okay, now you shift to, pro to uh, commercial operation, you have overhead and so on. So it add, makes it a little higher. But you know, now you have even two riders, but if you have three riders or four riders, you're bringing that cost down very low, much lower than the much, much lower than the cost of transit, much lower than the uh, cost of private ownership of your own car. But it does come back to this idea. Well, one, there's two things. One is, you know, having robots run, you know, running our cars. And the other is the sharing part of it. And that's why I, I get particularly alarmed by this concern about sharing because in every way we need to be sharing on transit, on planes, on scooters, on bikes, and on ride hailing. On that note, we'll continue in just a moment, but this is a good time to remind you 
about our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. To get more information, head to MOTOETF.com. When you get to the website, it's a good idea to read the white paper that's there. It's titled The Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. Lots of great information there to help you make informed decisions about investing. You may know that ETFs can be a smart way to spread your risk and focus on a particular category. So the site again is MOTOETF.com. Going to turn to some of the headlines from the latest Smart Driving Car newsletter. Uh, this one is hot off the press, Alan. Uh, prosecutors recommending a prison time of 27 months for Anthony Lewandowski, the former head of Uber's self-driving unit who had entered a guilty plea to taking documents from Google and bringing them to Uber. Well, I guess you're trying to get me in trouble by commenting <laughs> on that. Uh, I guess I'll put myself in trouble. Uh, um, I don't know, as I put in the newsletter, um, I don't know, I, I guess Trump's not his friend or something like that for the prosecutors to come out there. I mean, <clears throat> I no, don't know. No. He, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, Anthony didn't do, did a very bad thing and it's a very bad, and it's a thing that, uh, that nobody in Silicon Valley or anybody should do. Whether or not Anthony deserves to go to jail for over a year for it, uh, you know, I, I tend to think that, think that that's, really harsh. I think the better thing is to take some of his money and take some of his time and put it to, put it to good use to help um, uh, rehabilitate some people that are currently in, in prison and, and bring them out. And I think that would be a whole heck of a lot more better thing to do. Um, yeah, you know. Um, I don't uh, think so, Alan. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, no, it's let's, jump let's in here. I, that was, I would right. say that was, that was white collar crime. He stole yeah. something that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's going to go to jail for 27 months for having stolen hundreds of millions of dollars. Think how much jail time people are spending otherwise. I, I, I agree with that statement totally, uh, Robin. Okay, go ahead. So Keep I, I wanted just to, to go back to where we yeah, ended yeah, up please, with the yeah, autonomous please. vehicles going everywhere. Yeah. Um, I want to remind us that we all agreed we need a multimodal system. So we need to make sure that we have made safe bike pedestrian network road allocation for everywhere to accommodate all those short trips, wherever they are, which means less space for these other autonomous vehicles that are door to door. And we need to get the right pricing for congestion. And we're saying there'll be no emissions because they'll be electric, but we need to get the right pricing for electric because at the prices that from Dan's um, group, um, Lou Fulton, he was saying the marginal cost of moving an electric autonomous AV is like 55 cents for, I think I used to quote this, I think it was 55, it ends up being about 55 cents an hour if you are, if you're doing like 30 miles an hour. And I think, where would I not send a vehicle for 55 cents an hour of marginal cost? There's no place I wouldn't send it. And so I have a huge, huge anxiety based in economics, which is, if we don't charge for zero occupancy vehicles, we're going to be using those vehicles to do any useless thing at all. So coming back to whether it's a solution or a hell, it's an enormously fantastic solution if we can clamp down now on all the things we know are issues, which is, but then, which is congestion and emissions and road space allocation. Like those have to be built into those cheap prices. And, and, and vehicle utilization. 
And, and I think I think ride sharing has to be in there, and it has to be motivated because that's the only way you 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 address the the congestion issue is you make sure that there are two three people in the vehicle, and it probably doesn't come from your doorstep taking you from your doorstep. It comes from a a bus stop to a bus stop, which is easily accessible, which for which there's better opportunity to 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 have a ride share and those kinds of things. It it is not it is not the have you know individual uh, menued services for um, uh, that, that that go out there. Unless we get the pricing right and the infrastructure yeah. right, it's hellacious. But but beyond that, Robin, I, I mean, once we were you and I in 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 one of, or maybe you weren't there. It was a discussion where we had somebody who was advocating for for fairness and equity in general, and then she said. I, I, in principle, the idea of autonomy is interesting, but if you have, I think the example was if you have a black woman waiting for an autonomous shared ride and it arrives and it has three white men inside, she will not take that ride. And then, so, I mean, economically, it, it makes a lot of sense to not have a driver, but there is a need for some intervention of not necessarily a driver but but somebody else i mean i think there's a lot of devil advocates arguments around this to sort of to sort of look at what we are proposing i agree with you and it could be a black woman or it could be a white woman um that that is definitely an issue and it's uh, it's an issue and in many places we have women only vehicles because men are terrible but we also have shockingly, and I, I don't want to undercut that example because I think it's true. I have been a woman. I am a woman. I've been a young woman and I wouldn't want to do that either. You're still a young woman. But, Come on, Robin. But let's, let's just look. I've, I've watched, and you have too. I was in Washington, D.C. a couple years ago, and I watched this beautiful young black woman get into an Uber or Lyft that had a young white male driver. And I thought, oh, my God have times changed. That that woman was willing and planned and was going to get into that car. That he was a complete stranger, not, not licensed in some usual way. And so I, I want so to give possibility to both of those. Possibility number one, we will be making accommodations that are, you know what, there are people who are horrific and you can never ride with them. And they're also culturally really bad behaviors and we'll make those accommodations, but also there is this crazy ability among us to do accommodate those things because whatever the situation was, it wasn't high risk. And there was a video camera in the car and I do have my panic button and my husband did know that I went, I, I don't know. I'm just, Robin, I looked at elevators and the use of elevators. I always use an elevator analogy. And, and, you know, in certain situations, if you're in Trump Tower, the elevator is used one way. If you're in Bedford-Stuyvesant, uh, it's used another way. But elevators, at least pre-COVID, uh, were shared. Uh, kids who lived in, in Bed-Stuy or whatever uh, on the But there's also times floor. when they were very dangerous. In uh, projects, uh, people don't get into them. That's why they uh, use well, stairs. Well, 
Uh, yes, and then they bet, you know, 14 flights, who knows, and, you know, pew at I goes and blah, 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 and whatever that we've built for, you know, we don't even, holy mackerel, we're going to be here for a week, not just all day if we go into that one. But, you know, there, we, we, need, we need to, first of all, we need to behave, and all this misbehavior that we've done in the past has to end, and all this racism and crap. You know, we have to get beyond all that stuff. And, and, and in fact, we've been very wrong on all that. And I don't even want to go in and we can't go there either. But I, th I think there, uh, we, we have to promote the fact that we should be riding together. That gets back to my, you know, we haven't sold this at all. There, there aren't really people out. I mean, there, there, there isn't a great movement saying, hey, give a ride to somebody. Hey, it's okay if you're out there hitchhiking. Holy mackerel! I, you know, I didn't have a car until I was twenty. I couldn't afford it. Twenty-two years old, I hitchhiked everywhere. I mean, so the question is: so the question is, if we do some of those security measures, like Robin was talking about, you know, video cameras, you know, a, a red button, you know, better uh, licensing of the, uh, you know, if there are drivers of the drivers, um, more video if there's not drivers, and perhaps even, you know, picking a affi affinity-based uh, rides so that, you know, the vehicle's only for women, um, you know. I, I mean, think about children going to soccer. Yeah. 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 So is that going to work? I mean, are these the measures that will be uh, acceptable and effective. Sometimes, when when you add all of these things, you actually end up with public transport as we have it today, and then it, it, it's just a funny thing that that I mean, we we may be just looking at things in such a way that we say, well, we need all of this because that's what we have now, and that we want to just return to what we have, just in a better state, and and, and probably. Probably there is there is a way where we can get all of this together, get the economics right, and then we will have better systems. I mean, the, the beauty and the, sort of the promise of self-driving vehicles with ride sharing is that you have so much greater flexibility. But then that promise needs to be achieved by actually having self-driving vehicles which are truly self-driving and then not depending on the venture capital funds in order Managing for this to properly over, over, overseeing them properly putting the right constraints on it uh, making sure that the local community is able to go into and change the algorithms that are being used to run these things and be able to have the reporting that in fact it is serving the community that needs the mobility first i mean i think that i happen to think that all those things are doable why because it's a, it's an algorithm there's code there you can follow it it's not a bunch of ai really i mean because the, never mind but you know that, that you can do that and and deliver that and and i think with respect to 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 the 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 pricing there are two things there's the cost and there's the price okay 
and 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 one has to deal because you can price them any way you want depends how much you you need alms for the poor to go out to take whatever you price it at to go pay for what the heck it costs and the hard and the, the more that it costs the more you have to be out there alms for alms for the poor and so you know uh, yeah all those things uh, <laughs> uh, there's a related did we get anywhere story or did we just, <laughs> i don't know uh, but this is such a great topic i mean i don't know what well, I want to bring this one in, uh, Alan, from yeah. uh, we're not going to get to most of the stuff that's yeah. in the newsletter. People should be reading that anyway. Yeah. But Electric reports that uh, Tesla yeah. has been working on its own ride hailing app. He, Musk has talked about this before. Yeah. Tesla Network. And it says Tesla plans to offer special insurance for owners who participate in the network. So maybe this thing yeah. is going to be real I guess, where people I guess can what, turn their yeah. cars loose. Yeah, no, I don't. I think forget that's not going to happen for I'm going to be dead and gone. I'm sure by the time that happens. But the interesting thing about that is, is they could pivot that so that the Tesla driver could be using that as part of the information system that lets them know the other people who might be going from where they are to where they're going at about the time they're going and maybe welcome them into the vehicle and take them. And if there are enough Tesla drivers out there, then that person may in fact be willing, be, be, be feeling that in fact they can get a ride home too. And because it's not just the ride there, you got to get the ride home. I mean, that's why, you know, uh, the all the carpooling stuff, you know, never went anywhere because you had to guarantee both of them with the same person that that, that probability of that is 10 to the minus 82. So, you know, but, uh, you know. But if I own, own yeah, Tesla, go ahead. If I own my own Tesla, in what circumstances am I going to want to ride share with you? Because you're public spirited this and you think that this is part of your tree hugging and this is part of the save the planet and there's part of that. Uh, well, I know you shake your head. No, nobody thinks that way. Why not? You have to pay because your in car. Fact, in fact, this does more to, to save the planet, to, 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 to deal with that than a lot of the other things Cars, people do. To, huh? Cars, to pay for my own car, that's why I'm going to rent it out to other people. But that's not, <laughs> if I owned my car, I would not be ride sharing with someone else. You, you wouldn't pick somebody up in your neighborhood and take them because you happen to know they were you going. One of the things about the Tesla network is that he has got it a closed Tesla network among only Tesla drivers. So that, that's Tesla unfortunate and it doesn't scale. And yeah, it doesn't. There's no network effect there and there's also yeah. not meeting us supplies and supply and demand. Yeah, but but it's a place to start. I mean, but it will you fail. Can't, you can't start <laughs> so it. it can't, and, so it can't succeed if it can't survive. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, you know, that's part of the part of the problem here with all this. The problem is getting started. There, you know, so we I have, have a, all these visions of some, you know, future where everything is great. The problem is we haven't even started with driverless yet. Is, I was talking to Althorpe, and I thought he had an interesting thought, which is bus rapid transit with autonomous vehicles, because then it it solves a huge amount of the technical safety issues because that vehicle is in its lane and it has its route and it's in its lane. It reduces, reduces the price of transit. So I thought it, it kind of overcame some of the technical- How does it reduce the price of transit? I mean, because it really does drivers. Yeah, I mean, but, but if, it's, if it's a real bus rapid transit system that has real demand, you should be able to have 30, 40, 
people in there, they can each pitch in a dime or 20 cents and pay for the driver. The the issue is, is when you don't have enough people to pitch in and pay for the driver, it's not in the bus rapid, but anyway, that that takes us a whole different. But but let's let's just say you're in small town X, there could be a discrete number of routes from places to the essential services, to the school, to the food store, to the hospital, whatever. There's a discrete, like you would, you would put on it a subway operational map. design domain sure and, and local streets all the all the and those streets would be hyper mapped in their safety ways so it's less risk for the autonomous sure. vehicles than going anywhere from anywhere yeah it would be able to so i i thought that was sure compromise idea yeah but that 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 would that's out of any of these operational design domain it's a subset of the network in which you think you know you can actually provide the service but to sit there and say i'm going to provide scheduled service between that for the do no 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 not the schedule part just the fixed tracks sure well it doesn't even have to be why should it be fixed it it, it really can use the whole network it can make left turns right turns it can go in i mean you know that's that's, then you're getting to that then it has to all the safety of the whole town so i I just was saying it's a way to reduce the infinity to a known subset well you know absolutely i mean the part of that that is compelling to me is that we have to start somewhere and part of this is the local communities having confidence so you know making those operational design domains more limited you know does make sense in that way i mean we do i mean the fundamental problem is we've created is land use and you know we're not going to fix that overnight but we've got such diffuse we got so much sprawl and such diffuse origin and destination patterns even for a household, any particular household, that it's really, you know, that's a barrier here. And, but, it, you know, it's also the opportunity for the automation be, and the on-demand because, you know, that's why conventional transit won't work in almost, you know, the vast majority of this country. And so it, you know, in kind of a backward way, it means that we do need to do it differently and so these micro transit ideas where you're using vans, you know, Via is a good example. They're doing it at a more limited way and getting into pooled rides and then pooled automated. It seems like that's really, as I said earlier, that's the only path to a significantly better transportation system. It, it has to be accepted by the customer and the people that live along the 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 routes of or the roads of the operational design domain as i like to say you know if one of these things comes down my street and i don't want it here i'm going to send my dog out there it's going to stop i'm going to run out i'm going to jack it up and put it on cinder blocks and steal its wheels so in fact it is a very much of a local thing it's not brought down from the top we're giving you this service that it has to be brought up from the customers who will actually benefit from it who will protect it who who will who who think that this is contributing to them if it doesn't do that it's never going to start it's never going to happen irrespective of the amount of investment capital coming out of Silicon Valley or whatever. I don't know, maybe, but Fred's trying to, Robin needs to go. (laughs) Well, we want to remind you to check out the replay video or audio of last week's Driving the Debate on Amazon Zooks and Beyond. 
The site is drivingthedebate.com. Keep an eye out for more to come. If you're signed up for the Automated Vehicle Symposium taking place this week, keep an eye out for us there tomorrow. That is it for this edition. Thanks to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO. And more information is available at MOTOETF.com. We want to thank Robin and Carlos from the New Urban Mobility Alliance. The website is NUMO.global. And Dan Sperling, really appreciate you being with us as well. The website for more there is its.ucdavis.edu. Sorry. You. you can find us at smartdrivingcar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. You can get your smart speaker to play us. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thanks for listening or watching, and please stay safe.